this morning, we are going to continue to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ by studying the story of how it happened from the Gospel of Luke. And you know, there's one line in this story that I find so interesting. It's when these ladies first arrive at the tomb and the angels, the first thing they say to them is, why do you seek the living among the dead? In other words, what did you come expecting to find? What were you looking for? Why are you looking for someone who is alive among the dead? Because the reality is these ladies showed up ready for a funeral, but they didn't find what they were expecting at all. They came ready to mourn the worst news possible, the death of their teacher and their friend and their Lord. But what they found was the best news possible the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You see, Christians believe that Easter is about the most amazing and the most surprising news ever about a king who came into this world to conquer the grave. But I know that in a room like this, there's bound to be a wide variety of backgrounds and perspectives. And it might be different if I were to ask everyone in this room, what does Easter mean to you? What does Easter mean? And I think there's basically four different approaches that we can take when we talk about Easter or Resurrection Sunday. The first is that we can approach Easter as consumers. Easter is just another consumer holiday. It's another Valentine's Day or whatever else. It's just another opportunity for us to hang out with family, maybe eat some candy or do whatever else. For us, Easter is just chocolate, running around searching for plastic eggs or decorating our own eggs. It can be about buying Easter baskets, which by the way, we were at Walmart the other day and we saw these things are like $25 now. I mean, it's a basket with some chocolate in it. Not even the Easter bunny can get away from inflation, it seems like. And speaking of the Easter bunny, we take our kids to the mall and Bass Pro Shops and whatever else. We wait in line for two hours to torture them by forcing them to sit on this stranger's lap. I mean, our girls, we took them last year and they were so terrified that we didn't want to put them, they think they're still traumatized from last year. And for a good reason, because if you made me sit on some creepy dude dressed up and it was a rabbit's lap, I'd be terrified too. But the point is for a lot of us, Easter can just be that. It can be bunnies and chocolate and that can be the extent of it. It's a consumer thing. But others of us can approach Easter as skeptics because in our modern world, we are far too sophisticated. You know, those ancient people were idiots, so they could believe in things like miracles, but not us today. We have science. We are far too sophisticated to believe that a dead guy actually came back to life again. That's crazy stuff. But let me encourage you, if that's you this morning, you're in really good company because that's exactly how Jesus's best friends reacted to when they heard about the resurrection. But what I hope you'll carefully do this morning is consider the evidence as we journey to the empty tomb together because you might just find the living where you expected the dead. But third, others of us can approach Easter as indifferent believers. Indifferent believers. Here's what I mean by that little phrase. You would call yourself a Christian and you would believe on an intellectual level, sure, Jesus was the son of God and sure, Jesus rose from the dead, but who cares? I mean, why does that really matter? What difference does that really make in my life today? Sure, that happened 2,000 years ago, but I've got work tomorrow morning. I've got bills to pay. I've got lunches to pack. I've got stuff going on. Why does that event that happened in history make a difference in my life today? What I hope to show you, if that's you this morning, is that the resurrection is not just one event that happened among many. It is the start of a new world. The resurrection changes absolutely everything. 
finally, this is the fourth way we can approach Easter, and I hope by the end of the message, this is all of us. We can approach Easter as worshipers. We can acknowledge that God himself intervened in history to rescue his people by sending his son into this world to die on a cross as a sacrifice for sin and to be raised from the dead three days later. We can approach Easter as worshipers because the resurrection of Jesus Christ opened the door to heaven. It was the start of a new creation. And it's the only reason that you and I can have hope today. So if the first followers of Jesus went to the place of the dead, expecting to find Jesus dead, but what they found instead was that Jesus was alive and that death was dead. And this morning, this is the point I'd like to show you above all else. Jesus has been raised from the dead, so we should trust in him and live with hope. Because Jesus is alive, we should trust him and we should live with hope. So with this in mind, let's read this story together. Luke chapter 24, we'll start in verse one. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. And so, Father, we ask for your blessing upon the preaching of your word this morning. I pray that you would open up our hearts to rejoice and to celebrate the incredible good news that he is not here, but he is risen. And I pray that you would help us to see how that fact changes everything. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'd like to answer three questions with you this morning. And the first is this, why should we believe in the resurrection? Why should we believe in the resurrection? Let's just be real, guys. This is weird. This is really weird. A lot of times we can get so used to things that we can kind of lose sight of how weird it is that this is about a dead guy who came back to life and not just like, you know, he kind of died for a minute and then came back, was publicly executed, buried for three days, then came back to life again. Why should we believe in the resurrection? Luke, the careful historian, documents several pieces of evidence in this beautiful, well-crafted story that I think we would do well to carefully consider this morning. First of all, we see the empty tomb. We see an empty tomb. Let's start this story in verse one. It says that the women had prepared spices 
to anoint Jesus's body for burial. Those would have been very expensive. And they first did this on Friday, but they had to go home because it was late in the evening on Friday and they had to rest on the Sabbath in accordance with the commandments. So they rest on Saturday. They get up really early on Sunday morning, like many of you did. Thank you for coming at eight o'clock. So they get up really early on Easter Sunday morning and they come to prepare his body with the spices. And they did this to be an act of devotion to honor Jesus's body and prepare it for burial, but that's just the point I want to start by making. Why did they do this? Because they thought he was dead. They thought he was dead. They were coming to prepare his body for burial. They were not expecting a resurrection at all. In fact, if you were to read John's account of the resurrection, when Mary Magdalene gets there and she sees that the stone has been rolled away, she goes, oh no, someone stole the body. Resurrection never even entered her mind. When they got to the tomb that morning, the stone had been rolled away. And here's the key for us. They went out on Easter morning, fully expecting to find an occupied tomb. And they were absolutely shocked to find it empty. And friends, that tomb really was empty. The four gospels all give us eyewitness testimony. And I want you to think about this. The early enemies of Christianity the Romans, the Jews who did not believe in Christ, they were desperate to stamp out Christianity and they could have done so very easily. All they had to do was produce a corpse. All they had to do was show us an occupied tomb, but they couldn't do it. But the tomb was empty and there were hundreds of eyewitnesses who claimed to see Jesus after his death. And they all gave their lives to proclaim this message of the resurrection. And let me ask you, would they have given their lives for a lie? This presents a challenge to all of us that are here this morning. We have to ask ourselves this because there are no shortage of secular theories about different ways to explain the empty tomb, what might've happened. Some say, well, the disciples came, they stole the body and they made this whole story up. Others say that they all hallucinated. But my personal favorite is what's called the swoon theory. This one is that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He merely swooned. He passed out. So then they buried him. He woke up later. uh, And after all the blood loss and the beating, he rolls away the stone by himself, which by the way is about 400 pounds. He beats up the Roman guards. He runs away. The ladies show up on Sunday and go, oh man, resurrection. If you have enough faith to believe that, good for you. But personally, I think the resurrection makes the most sense of what actually happened. That tomb was empty, my friends, and that's some evidence that you and I have to deal with. But next, we see the announcement of the angels. The announcement of the angels. So the ladies, they get to the tomb, they find it empty, And the angels say, and they see these angels, so understandably they're perplexed and they bow their faces to the ground and they're frightened. And this is what the angels say. They say, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. I love the way the angels address this because I want you to see this is a mild rebuke. They're like, why are you shocked guys? Like Jesus called his shot. If you've read through the gospel of Luke, you'll know that three times before this, he explicitly tells them that all of this is going to happen. For example, Luke 9, 22, Jesus said to them, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. 
Man, if they'd been paying attention, they wouldn't have come to the Tomb of Spices. They'd have come with popcorn to see the show. (laughs) They'd know that this is what had always been predicted. This was God's plan. This is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, everything that had been written about him. Friends, this is why this is comforting to me this morning. These women came to this tomb likely devastated because Jesus was their Lord. He was their rabbi. He was their friend. They thought that the evil one had won, but Jesus was risen in fulfillment of God's perfect plan. Do we need any other reminders that God is always in control? That God is sovereign? That even the most horrible thing imaginable, the death of the son of God is all in perfect fulfillment of his plan? The late R.C. Sproul used to say, there is not one maverick molecule in the universe. Our God is sovereign. He is in control. And even what seemed like the ultimate victory of darkness was but one step in the fulfillment of God's perfect plan. So maybe in your life, you came in this morning with a little bit of darkness. Maybe there's a trial that you're facing in your own life. And a lot of times, the reason why we become stressed and we become anxious and we become frustrated is that we forget this truth. We forget that our God is in control, that he always has a plan, and we try to control things on our own. You know, I read this week, the week before his death, Martin Luther was riding back and forth as his wife. He was in a different town and she was worried about him. And since it was the week before his death, maybe she had reason to. But this is what he said to his wife. Martin Luther to the holy lady, full of worries, pray and let God worry. You have certainly not been commanded to worry about me or yourself. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. These angels are reminding us that every bit of this was God's plan. And we have peace when we learn to rest in that. But the next piece of evidence that we see is the witness of the women, the witness of the women. Continuing in verse eight, it says, they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. So now they believed that Jesus was risen from the dead and they're filled with joy and they're on the way back to tell the disciples. But there's a detail here that's incredibly significant that I don't want you to miss this morning. The first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ were women. They were women. Why is that significant? Don't throw rocks at me, okay? This is not Nate speaking. I'm just telling you the reality that in first century culture, the testimony of women was not regarded very highly at all. In fact, there were some ancient historians who said that the testimony of a woman was not admissible in a court of law because their word was not viewed very highly. Early critics of Christianity among the Romans used to mock this very thing, that women were the eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Why does that matter? Here's why it matters. If you were making this story up, you would not make women your first eyewitnesses. You would not, it would weaken your story in this culture. The only reason it would be here is if it's true. And not just that, Luke names names. He says it was Mary Magdalene, it was Joanna, it was Mary, the mother of James. The chapter before this, he said it was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Why does he name names? Because I want you to know, Luke is only writing like 30 years after the events. A lot of them are probably still alive. This is a way of saying, you don't believe me, go ask them. If they're making this up, why cite your sources? Why give footnotes? 
every bit of this story has the marks of authenticity, that this is a historical account, not a fairy tale. But there's one last piece of evidence I wanna show you. That's the doubt of the disciples. The doubt of the disciples. So the women run and they tell the disciples, verse 11, but these words seem to them to be an idle tale. Some translations say nonsense. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. The disciples are like, this is ridiculous. Dead people don't come back to life. And even after hearing his predictions, even after seeing the miracles, even after seeing Lazarus being raised from the dead, they're still like, this is crazy. Can't happen. Nonsense. But how is that evidence for the resurrection? Here's why. A lot of people assume, and there's other theories that I mentioned, that, you know, ancient people are just superstitious. They're dumb. They're not as intelligent as us modern people. They didn't have antibiotics. They didn't have iPhones. You know, they didn't have Google. They didn't have all these things. So they're too dumb and they can believe in things like that, but we're too sophisticated today. This is an attitude that C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. <laughs> the problem is that Luke won't let you do that. He's crystal clear that they are just as skeptical as we would have been. They are just as incredulous as we would have been. This doubt shows that they didn't make this up. They weren't expecting this at all. But let's close by looking at verse 12, because Luke tells us that Peter ran to the tomb to check it out. And interestingly, in Mark's account of the resurrection, the angel specifically tells the women, hey, go tell Peter. Why? Why does that matter? Anybody remember where Peter was a few days earlier? He was denying Jesus. He betrayed him at his darkest hour. And now Jesus is reaching out to him through the angel. This shows us the ability of Jesus Christ to redeem and restore no matter what we have done. And here's why this is good news for some of you this morning. Maybe you haven't been to church in a long time. Maybe it's your first time coming to church. And maybe you were looking for lightning strikes when you came in through the door or something. Let me tell you something. There is no one who is too far gone for the grace of God. Absolutely no one. There is no sin that is too big for the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. And the Easter story is yet another reminder of that. If God can forgive Peter, the denying betrayer, and use him for his glory, then he can use you too. So all of this evidence and a lot more is why I am firmly convinced, guys, that this is not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. Jesus Christ bodily rose from the dead in time and in history. And if you're here today and you're skeptical about that, we would love to journey with you as you investigate the claims of Christ. I've already alluded to it, but let me just plug one more time. We have these great little books, The Case of Easter for Easter by Lee Strobel. And Lee Strobel has a really cool story. He actually was an atheist, very skeptical. And he actually set out to disprove Christianity. And he was smart enough to know, though if you wanna disprove Christianity, all you gotta do is get rid of the resurrection. You gotta prove that it didn't happen. So he, as a journalist, investigated the evidence for the resurrection and he ended up becoming a Christian in the process because he looked at the evidence. And I'd love to give you a copy of that book for free today so we can journey with you as you consider the claims of Christ. So now that we've walked through this story and we've answered our first question, why should we believe the resurrection? Let's now turn to the next question, which is this. Why does the resurrection matter? 
That's a cool story and all. And even if it happened, well, great. It happened 2000 years ago, awesome. But why should I care? I've got work tomorrow morning. I've got other things that I am repressing in my mind. Why does the resurrection matter? Let me give you four reasons. First of all, it proves that Jesus is God. It proves that Jesus is God. It proves that he really is who he said he was, who he claimed to be. Many people today will say, you know, Jesus, he was a good man, good moral teacher, a wise philosopher, religious guru, therapist, life coach, whatever you wanna call it, but definitely not the son of God. Definitely not the word made flesh, God incarnate. But Jesus Christ repeatedly claimed to be God. And the resurrection was the proof. This is what Paul said in Romans 1, 4, that Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is his resurrection by which he was declared to be the son of God in power. It was the public demonstration to all the world that he is the Lord of life, that he has conquered the grave. But next, it proves that Jesus paid for our sins. The resurrection proves that the price has been paid in full. Three days earlier on Good Friday, Jesus died on the cross as a substitute. He died in the place of all of his people. The reality is the Bible teaches that every human being is a sinner. And and that word sin just means to rebel against the God of the universe to live for our glory instead of for God's. Because of this, what we deserve from God is his punishment. But God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to take that punishment in our place on that cross. And remember what the angel said to the women earlier in our story. They said that the son of man must be delivered up and crucified. Why is there a must there? Because it was the only way. It was the only way to save us. Sin demands a sacrifice, a payment. And this is what A.W. Tozer said about the way that Jesus saved us. That that we were saved not by Jesus' fist, but by nail-pierced hands. Not by muscle, but by love. Not by vengeance, but by forgiveness. Not by force, but by sacrifice. Jesus Christ, our Lord, surrendered in order that he might win. He destroyed his enemies by dying for them. And he conquered death by allowing death to conquer him. But if Jesus died for our sins, then how does the resurrection factor into that? The apostle Paul teaches us in Romans four, where he says this, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The wages of sin is what? Anybody know? Death. Jesus paid our wages. So by his resurrection, it's God's way of saying paid in full. The resurrection is the receipt of our redemption. It is the way of saying the price has been completely and totally paid so that you can be forgiven. It's the proof. This is the good news of Easter, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. If you are a Christian, the message of Easter for you is that God has broken the power of sin and that he offers freedom from sin and shame today. There's an old hymn that I've been singing this week as I've been preparing for Easter. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. 
Friends, that's gloriously true. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. But there's an author named Jared Wilson who updated that line for sinners like me. He said, because he lives, I can face yesterday. Your past no longer defines you because he lives. Your present sins no longer need control you because he lives. And life is worth the living tomorrow because he lives. But next, the resurrection matters because it shows that Jesus defeated death. By his resurrection, Jesus defeated sin, but he also defeated the consequence of sin, which was death. If you know the story of the Bible, you know that death was never in God's plan. It was never in his intention for humanity from the beginning. From the beginning, he called everything that he had made good. We were cursed with death because our first parents rebelled against God and we've been following in their steps ever since. And because Jesus dealt with sin by dying and rising from the dead, he dealt with the consequence of sin, which is death. And this is what the risen savior says to his people today. This is what Jesus said after his resurrection in Revelation chapter one. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death in Hades. That he rose that morning with the keys to, in his hands. And this is the, what we just sang about, that death has lost its grip on me that no longer are we controlled by death. If you're a Christian, yes, you will still die physically one day unless you get the Elijah treatment. You probably won't, but you're still gonna die physically one day unless the Lord returns first. None of us gets out of this thing called life alive. But one day when Jesus returns in glory, we will be raised with him. We will get new bodies and we will live in a new heavens and a new earth. Romans 8, 11 says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We will be raised. And here's why this should encourage you this morning. The Bible tells us that in Christ, death has lost its sting. It's lost its sting. We're still gonna die, but the sting has been removed. All death can do to you as a Christian is usher you into everlasting joy and peace. So do your worst. You know, I read a story this week about a father and his young son who were riding in their car on a warm spring day, kind of like how I wish today was. Uh, I mean, we, we had all the pretty weather like in the middle of the week when we're all at work. Then Easter, it's like 50 degrees, sorry. Um, I've preached on complaining before. I know I shouldn't do it. Um, <laughs> So a father and his young son are preaching. Uh, they're preaching, wow. Uh, they're riding, that's just me with my kids. They're riding in the car on a warm spring day with the windows down and a bee flies into the car. And this son is actually deathly allergic to bees. And he becomes terrified when he sees this bee flying around and he starts shouting out and covering himself. So the father then reaches out and he grabs the bee. He holds it in his hand for a few seconds and then he lets go but the bee wasn't killed and it starts still flying around and it's still buzzing and the son is still terrified and he's yelling out, but the father reaches out his hand one more time, but this time he doesn't grab the bee. This time he shows his son his hand and he shows him the stinger in his hand. And he said, listen, I know you can still hear him buzzing, but he can't hurt you anymore because I've taken the sting. Friends, Jesus Christ has died on the cross for us. And so though one day we will die, he has taken the sting. He's taken the sting in our place. 
This is why the apostle Paul can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain because it leads us into the presence of God. But finally, the resurrection gives our lives a new purpose. The resurrection of Jesus is what gives meaning to our lives today. You know, the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that if Christ has not been raised, you might as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. In other words, if Christ has not been raised, then Christianity is not true. If Christ has not been raised, then Christianity is the biggest hoax in the history of the world. I know that's strong language, I intend it to be. It's all built on the resurrection. It is the foundation. It is the linchpin, as Pastor Sean says, of Christianity. But since Christ has been raised, what you do today matters forever. Since Christ has been raised, every moment has eternal significance. And therefore, every day is an opportunity to live for the glory of God. After talking about the resurrection, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Your life is not in vain because he lives, because he has been raised from the dead. So what you do matters. God sees you and God rewards and your life has meaning and purpose because of this. So we've answered the first two questions. Why should we believe in the resurrection? And why does the resurrection matter? But I've saved the most important question for last because a lot of this can be a cool story and it can be interesting and it can be encouraging and heartwarming, but what are you supposed to do with this? Why should this make a difference in our life today? The third question is this, how then should we live in light of the resurrection of Christ, how then should we live? First and foremost, because Christ has been raised, I would plead with you to receive the gospel. Receive the gospel. And let me explain what we mean at Coastal Church when we use that word gospel. The gospel is a word that simply means good news. It's good news. It's the good news that the God of the universe has made a way for sinners like you and me to have a relationship with him. You see, in the very beginning of the story, God created the universe. He created the world and he created all of us in it. And the Bible says that God made us in his image. And all that means is that he made us to live like him, to reflect him in the world, to have a relationship with him. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, and every human being following from them after has sinned against God. This means that we have broken God's law. We have rebelled against God. We have lived for our own glory instead of for God's. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. What we deserve because of our sin is to die, yes, both physically here and now, but also much worse, eternally. This leaves us with a serious problem. And what most of us try to do by default is earn our salvation through our own good works. I think if I can just go to church enough, if I can just give to charity enough, if I can just get to where my good works outweigh my bad works, then maybe it'll make it, out, it'll make it all right in the end. But here's the problem. And I want you to hear this this morning. The Bible does not say that good people go to heaven. You ready for this? The Bible says that perfect people go to heaven. Ouch. Because I don't know about you, but I can speak for myself when I say that I'm the farthest thing from that. So where does that leave us? Left to ourselves, it leaves us completely hopeless. 
It leaves us with eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die forever. That's why we need a savior. That's why we need a savior. And God, as an overflow of his great love and mercy and grace, entered into this world to rescue us. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, who is God himself. He took on flesh and he entered into this world. And you remember how I said, you have to be perfect? Jesus was. He was sinless. He was perfect. He completely fulfilled the demands of the law of God. And yet Jesus went to the cross on Good Friday. Why? He paid our wages. He paid for our sins on that cross by dying in our place, bearing the wrath of God on behalf of sinners like you and me. They put him in a tomb. They sealed the tomb. They put guards outside of it. And in one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Pilate says, go make the tomb as secure as you can. I just love it because of the irony. Then three days later, these ladies come to the tomb and the announcement is, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is risen. He is risen. He is alive. Jesus rose again, conquering sin and death. He ascended into heaven where he is right now at the right hand of the father. And one day he is coming again. And when he does, he will establish his kingdom on earth and raise us to life with him. So how do we have eternal life? How does this gospel make a difference in our lives today? Let me tell you, we repent of our sins. I turn from doing life my way. I confess to God that I have sinned against him, that I have broken his law, that I deserve his punishment. I admit my sinfulness to God and I return from it. But next we believe. We believe the gospel. We believe that he is God, that he has died for our sins, that he has risen from the dead. And then finally, we receive Christ into our life. We put all of our hope and all of our trust in Jesus and in him alone, that I receive him into my life as my Lord and Savior. This is what Paul says in Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the promise. No terms and conditions, no strings attached, no loopholes. If you confess and you believe, you will be saved. That's the promise, eternal life. If you're here today and you wanna talk more about a relationship with Christ and you wanna receive him today, at this time, I'd like to invite forward our prayer team. Please come and talk with someone with our prayer team during the last song uh, or after the service or even write that on your connect card and we will call you this week, man. We would love nothing more than to talk with you about how you can have a relationship with your creator. And finally, last point this morning, with this, I'd like to invite the worship team to come back. How then should we live? We should live with hope. We should live with hope because Christ has been raised. We have reason for hope. And let me be very blunt with you this morning. If Christ has not been raised, you have no reason for hope. None. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ has not been raised, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. If Christ has not been raised, go do something else on Sunday mornings. Church is a lame hobby. Go play golf or whatever you like to do. But since Christ has been raised, we have hope. We have infinite eternal reason for hope because Christ has been raised. 
As it says in 1 Peter 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus has conquered Satan. He has conquered sin. He has conquered death by his resurrection. And because he lives, we can face anything in this life, including death itself with hope. And I'd like to close with an example of only the kind of hope that only the resurrection can give. John Patton was a missionary in the 19th century to an island called Anawa. And this was an island that had a tribe that was given to cannibalism. And as he was preparing to go there with the message of the gospel, there was an elderly man named Mr. Dixon who pleaded with him not to go because of the cannibals. And listen to what John Patton said in response. Mr. Dixon, you're advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. Very nice thing to say to someone. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen redeemer. And later, when Patton was facing a potentially violent situation with the local tribe, he wrote these words in his journal. I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. Where do you get that kind of courage? The resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that lets us look at death and say, the worst thing you can do to me is give me everlasting joy. The worst thing you can do to me is bring me into the presence of my savior. That's the kind of hope that only Jesus can give. My friends, this is the hope that sin has been defeated. This is the hope that your worst moments of suffering have an expiration date. This is the hope that Satan has been overthrown. The hope that the world will be made new. The hope that we will see our loved ones in Christ again. The hope that we will be raised from the dead to live with Jesus forever. And the hope that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord who will reign forever and ever. Do you have that kind of hope this morning? There's only one place to find it. It's in Jesus Christ, our living hope. So run to him this morning. Let's close with prayer. Lord Jesus, you are our hope. Our only hope in life and in death is that you have risen to conquer the grave. We love you. We worship you. We celebrate you. You alone are worthy, God. So Lord, we pray now that as we go from this place, we would go with an unshakable hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We love you. We worship you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.